make sure you take the right door on your way down. There's no telling where you might end up. Can you make it through? To the night's end. I'll see you soon. <laughs>
Not even the radioactive isotopes from Cold War testing mark our time as distinctively as the huge mutant chickens we've been devouring for decades, a never-ending graveyard of unnatural feasting. Colonel Sanders made a bigger geological mark than Hitler, said Anya with a throaty laugh. What a crazy world. Doug struck the match, flicked it onto the pile, and it roared into a glorious miniature inferno. He stood and tried to cap the lighter fluid, but his big clumsy hands ended up splashing it all over his right sleeve. Cursing, he flailed, trying to dry it out. Shouldn't you change your shirt? said Anya. Couldn't that be dangerous? It'll air out, said Doug, grinning. I'm not planning on playing with any more fires tonight. He then grabbed his beer again and toasted Betty, who silently drank something with an umbrella tilted in her glass. Here's to the seventh annual Friendsgiving feast, Doug said, raising a glass to the rest. Eleven, said Jamie, correcting him. Here, here, said Ted. Everyone toasted and tipped their glasses back. The first big log popped, flared, and smoked gray. Twilight fell fast around them. Doug and Janie's backyard faded into darkness. A large sloped lawn tucked at the center of a wooded ridge just underneath their 19th century home in northern New Jersey. The weekend before Thanksgiving had finally brought the crisp autumn air after weeks of strange rainstorms and unseasonable warmth. Most of the leaves still clung to the branches of the trees all around. Behind them, the house windows blazed with the lights of the dining room table and kitchen, where the dinner Brad and Anya had brought was finishing its last half hour in the oven at 325 degrees, some kind of slow roast they called the Iberian Surprise. Doug was skeptical. The women talked of the latest accomplishments of their children, each couple boasting two spawn under the age of 10, all of whom at the moment were stowed with babysitters. Everyone other than Doug talked about their college days at Charles Davenport University, where they had all met each other, other than Doug, who had never made it more than a semester of higher learning. They reflected upon Friendsgivings of the past, which had featured ill-advised sexual partners and cocaine amid wild gatherings with dozens of people. Now it was down to just the core group of initial college roommates, other than Doug. Doug had merely married into the Friendsgiving shenanigans. The pseudo-holiday was one he carefully marked with a dark ink mark on his planner, the Saturday before each Thanksgiving. Remember that one year we snuck out to the Johnsonville shed and you were wearing that little skirt and we did the thing with the... said Brad, elbowing Janie, who laughed and smacked his arm. How's business? Ted asked, leaning into Doug, swaying, not noticing his tie dipped a bit into his beer stein. Business is great, said Doug, flexing his aching elbow. We've never been so busy before. All the New Yorkers moving west into Jersey want to plant trees and build walls and dig out ponds, but they don't want to do it themselves, and they have plenty of money to pay us to do it. Same here, said Ted. We have a lot of projects coming up to redevelop the old factories around Newark, turning them all into deluxe condos. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it. You mentioned it, said Doug. That's great. Janie giggled loudly, pushed away from Brad, and walked around the circle. She nuzzled up next to Doug near the warmth of the fire. Brad cleared his throat. <clears> throat> As an anthropologist, this thrills me to think how we've kept this tradition alive while so much in the world is going utterly insane. Restless times, right? Said Janie, voice unsteady, swirling wine around her glass. Like the masses are enraged. 
Ted toasted to that. They all raised their glasses. I mean, people feel empowered because of the internet and whatever else, said Anya. A little learning on Wikipedia and Twitter is a dangerous thing. Doug gazed into the flame. Betty bit her lip and nodded. Ted rolled his eyes. Brad held up a finger as he swallowed a big draft of beer. The fire crackled. You know, all of our problems today have their roots back in our most ancient human origins, the original sins. What does that mean? said Doug. Everything goes all the way back to nature versus nurture, said Brad, smiling. I mean, we're all friends here. I must say, it all goes back to what's in our DNA, the fundamental building blocks of life. Betty shook her head, dreadlocks swishing back and forth. I don't know where this is going, but I don't like it, she said, reaching for Ted's hand. Yes, Bradley, said Ted, lifting her hand to his lips, kissing it. We black folks start getting a little concerned when our white friends start talking about big theories about genetics and breeding and all that supremacist nonsense. No white supremacy here. We're all homo sapiens around this fire, he said, nodding around with a goofy smile on his face. But the species that came before us are all intertwined in our genetic destiny, so to speak. No matter what our race, we are all little mismatches of the past, after all. Doug glared at him for the first time meeting Brad's eyes directly. I have no clue what you're talking about, he said. He glanced around. Anybody have any idea what he's talking about? You're a great example, Doug, said Brad, ignoring the host again. Look at you. You're a prime example of some of our genetic history. Large as life, right in front of us. You're like a walking time capsule. Like one of those charts showing the evolution of man. That sounds like an insult, Brad, Doug said, voice dropping low. No, really, may I? Said Brad, approaching with a crab-like sidestep towards Doug, who did not move. Brad pointed to his host's skull, finger hovering an inch from the cranium, narrating some of the key structural features. See here, the wide and protruding brow ridge, he said, and here, the wide nose, the thick neck, the, dare I say, soulful eyes. Then he placed a hand on each of Doug's deltoid muscles. And see here, strong and stocky, powerful. Your family comes from the Iberian Peninsula, central Spain, right? All of it adds up to one thing. Brad clapped him on the back. Neanderthal, said Brad. Doug, you carry within your genome distinct lineage from our dear extinct cousins. Janie laughed. My big strong caveman, she said, draping her arms around her husband, voice growing husky. I knew there was a reason for certain things. She pressed her body up against him and put her soft lips to his. Get a room, guys, said Ted. But Bradley, remind me, since ancient human history isn't my thing. If the Neanderthals were wiped out, how can we have this fine specimen mine standing right here before us now in the 21st century? Brad drained the last of his beer and tossed the bottle into the fire where it shattered into a hundred shards, sizzling the fire. Interbreeding. The Neanderthals are very close homo cousins. For thousands of years, there was genetic crossover between Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis, producing unique genetic admixtures. It seems as if there was actually a peaceful coexistence for some time. 
Anya handed Brad another beer, which he cracked and tipped back. But you see, something drastic happened. Sometime around 40,000 years ago, the Neanderthal were wiped clean from this earth in a mere generation, two at the most. The bone record shows mass death and many traumatic injuries, murders of some sort or another. What's more, the tooth marks on the remains indicate rampant cannibalism. What happened? asked Betty, her voice faint. We're not sure, said Brad, shaking his head. But based on some new findings from central Spain, the Neanderthal's last stronghold, our lab has a new theory. Brad took a dramatic sip of his beer, glancing at the bottle, smacking his lips. We believe Homo sapiens systematically hunted down and ate all the Neanderthals they could find. Might have been the biggest genocide in human history. And it seems even the mixed race hominoids were not safe. Our latest finds are gnarled, scorched bones piled deep in mass graves. The teeth marks are all human. The fires were for milk preparation. And we see that they vanished so fast it's the only logical solution. He paused. It seems like it wasn't war or anything with pitched sides, he added. Considering the speed with which the Neanderthals vanished from the fossil record, it was likely the Homo sapiens suddenly went into a frenzy and there was no escape. My God, that's awful, said Betty. It would have been a continent-wide massacre unheard of until World War II, said Anya, sing-songy, holding on to her husband's elbow. Every time Brad brings back some of the new data, we have to reread it a few times just to wrap our minds around how huge it was. For some reason, Doug's neck flushed with sweat. Janie nuzzled him. My tasty caveman morsel, she said, laughing, her pearly whites brushing across his skin there, making him flinch. I always knew there was something delicious about you. What a pleasant tell, Bradley, said Ted, looking up at the gloaming in the sky. A bedtime story for modern humanity. It does have a happy ending, said Brad. Our lab got a new DNA sequencer since the university is over the moon with all of our findings. They also funded new digs into our little Spanish cave of the ancients. Because of that, the latest news is that we have the best approximations of full genomes from our ancient ancestors and other things besides. Other things? Asked Jamie, releasing Doug and drifting around the fire circle towards Brad, who put an arm around her. Extinct animals. Pets they had. Pray they ate. He smiled broadly, face beaming, clearing his throat. Ahem. And it just so happens we have one of them in the oven tonight, he said, checking his watch. In another hour, we are going to have a meal of... Roast Woolly Mammoth. The cooking timer ticked down as they sat around the dining room table. Knives and forks lined up sharp alongside plates and crisply folded cloth napkins. The cocktail stood sweating, readily in reach. Janie sat next to Brad, who refused to answer any of the questions posed to him until more drinks were poured and places were taken around the table. Doug sat at the head of the table, slowly nursing his beer. Finally, Brad spoke. Amid their questions and occasional gasps, he had a simple tale to tell. Using microchondrial DNA painstakingly extracted from the inner parts of the animal bones found in the cave and sequenced on the latest machines, 
they were able to create entire genomes filling the gaps using probabilistic genotyping using modern analogs as reference templates. You retrofitted the genes to jam together an incomplete puzzle? That sounds a little helter-skelter. But Brad ignored him and continued on with his lecture. Doug closed his eyes and thought about other things, anything half-listening. After those first few steps, Brad and his team used the widespread technologies available to create cultured meat, substances based off cellular growth techniques in laboratories. Thus, the new tissues perfectly mimicked exactly the long-disappeared flesh that had once hung on those ancient bones. So, said Brad, what we have done is to create the same menu of our prehistoric forebears. Woolly mammoth, said Ted. We're going to eat lab-grown woolly mammoth? Isn't there something risky about this? Brad laughed and squeezed Janie tighter around the shoulders. It's totally safe. In the lunchroom at work, we had a few bites as a part of a Halloween feast, said Brad. But I ask you this. What's risky about eating something our ancestors ate all the time? What's the worst that could happen? Indigestion? They all laughed politely, except for Doug. The timer ding-dinged in the kitchen. Get ready to blaze new culinary trails, said Anya, clapping her hands in front of her face like a seal. Let me go get it out of the oven. And she whisked out to the kitchen with Janie at her heels. Doug raised his drink, pointed his finger. I'm reminded of Jurassic Park. You're so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think if you should, said Ted, nodding. Just like Dr. Jeff Goldblum said, I agree with Douglas. Relax, everybody, relax, said Brad. Let's just see the final product. Then you can decide whether you want to take the plunge for what could be a life-altering entree. Silence filled the dining room as they heard the oven squill open, the huge platter clink atop the stove. A blush of heat drafted in from the kitchen, along with the scent. It stung Doug right in the face. The stink was foul. There was something obscene to its seared, musky odor. It was something he had never smelled before in his life, but it triggered a wave of nausea deep down in his entrails. Something about it was wrong, just plain wrong. He opened his mouth to complain, turning to the other two men. But he was shocked to see the exact opposite reaction from them. Brad's eyes had sharpened and he licked his chops. Ted salivated visibly with glassy eyes. It was like a chemical spell had been cast. That smells amazing, Ted said, wiping at his lips with his sleeve, tying his napkin around his neck like a bib. Anya and Janie came in, carrying the silver-covered platter in between them. Their eyes were hungry too, and they smiled with sharp, bared teeth. They set the whole thing down in the center of the table on three trivets, and the glassware across the table rattled. Without further ceremony, Janie reached over and hoisted the cloche, unleashing steam swirling to the ceiling. The miasma of burnt tissue reached a fever pitch. Doug arrested his rising nausea long enough to glimpse the wobbling hunk of genetically engineered, lab-grown flesh there. It was brown and crisp from its 20 minutes at 500 degrees, which was followed by two hours at the lower temperature. It oozed its juices out from cracks and pustule-like breaks in the meat. His guests ooed and awed as they prepared to feast. Disgusting though the main cut was, something else caught Doug's notice. It was a smaller, more compact hunk alongside the bigger cut. It was blackened and it sizzled with audible pops and glistening grease. 
A mere glance at it set Doug's heart pounding for some reason. When Janie poked at the bigger piece with the cold steel of the knife for the first incision, it slid right in smooth. But when she made the slightest brush against the denser charred meat, the membrane seemed to bristle. She grunted and stabbed in. Once it pierced the membrane, the odor immediately intensified. The musk was sickening the salty abomination of gore. Doug rushed to the bathroom off the kitchen. He lost his last three beers into the toilet, but felt marginally better afterwards. He flushed, rinsed his face and mouth with water, and returned to his place at the table, where someone had left him a cut of the bigger, browner meat and a small sliver of the blackened hunk. The nausea loomed, but he was in more control now that his stomach was empty. Everyone around the table was immersed in their meal. They ate ravenously. They did not speak. They merely sliced, sawed, chewed, swallowed, repeat. Grunts and the clinking of silverware were the only sounds since the meat had ceased sizzling. Brad masticated mightily on a huge morsel in his cheek. Grease streaks ran down both sides of Janie's mouth. Even gentle Ted had completely splattered his bright sweater despite the bib which he had torn in the fury of his barehanded feeding. Brad glanced quickly and stared at Doug dead in the eyes without blinking. Darling, said Doug softly to Janie, leaning over to place a hand on her forearm. I think I have some kind of stomach thing. How's the food? She ignored him, but Brad pointed a sharp fork at his host. The brown meat is quite good, he said, spitting out a piece of gristle on his plate. But the black cut is something else entirely. Truly magical. What is the black cut? asked Doug. Janie groggily turned her head slowly to him just as a huge lump went down within her throat, like a rodent sliding down the gullet of a snake. Mystery meat, she said dreamily. That's what Brad said. He said he'd tell us at dessert, said Ted, mouth full like he was in a trance. Don't care. Too good. Brad grinned, stopped chewing. He set down his knife and fork and folded his hands as if in prayer. He spoke in low tones. Everyone paused mid-motion around the table. When we were going to work in the Spanish caves, we found lots of different bones, and we had the resources to sequence them all, he said. It wasn't just woolly mammoth, after all. Doug's empty stomach bottomed out. What did you do, Brad? asked Doug. What did you find? What is that meat? Brad grinned. The choice filet is none other than Neanderthal meat. Silence. Doug's jaw dropped. No one moved. That is disgusting, said Betty, tossing her fork on the remains of salad on her plate. She too had not touched any of the main course. More silence. But Anya giggled. Then Ted shrugged, swallowing his huge morsel. I don't care what it is, it's the best meal I've ever had, he said, sipping his drink. I can't believe how fucked up this is. I can't believe it, said Doug, voice rising. What would possess you to trick your friends into eating human meat? Fucking cannibalism? Oh, honey, it's really, really good. You should try it, said Janie, leaning over him sleepily, putting her head down on his arm. It must have some kind of tryptophan or something in it. It's like a drug or something. It makes me feel real, real good. 
Brad rubbed his stomach, then loosened his belt. He stared down at Doug again. It really is a hearty meal, Janie, he said. To answer your question, dear Doug, it's not cannibalism at all. Different species entirely. I was interested in seeing if this meat would explain all the prehistoric killing. I mean, if Neanderthal meat turned out to be incredibly delicious, it might explain a key chapter in human history. You're a fucking maniac, Brad, said Doug. And the rest of you, I can't believe you're okay with this. The taste is really amazing, said Anya, nibbling a burnt end. It tastes like something so familiar, like I've eaten it before. She chewed thoughtfully. But I know I haven't, she added. I would remember. It's kind of strange. Like it's hitting a part of my palate I've never ever known. I just wish there was more of it, said Ted, looking down at his plate, which he raised to his mouth to lick clean. Creeping panic rose in Doug's chest. Something wet ran along his arm. He looked down with panic. He saw it was Janie's tongue. Janie, what are you doing? He said, trying to shake her off. Stop that, stop! I've tasted this mystery meat before, she said, voice quavering. I just couldn't remember where, but now I know for sure. She bit him. He cried out as her teeth sank into the skin and into the muscle beneath. He pushed her head off with a gigantic heave and then sprung up from his chair, holding out the small tooth wounds in his forearm, which pulsed with blood. What the fuck? He spat. Holy shit, what the fuck? I knew it, Janie said, licking her bloody chops. Every time I put my mouth on you, any place and every place, I knew I was tasting something so familiar. Something so right. Now I know it was just the taste of the true flavor, the primal based. She stood and licked her fingers, slurping up the red stuff. No one else moved except for Betty, whose jaw dropped. Doug backed away from the table. No one moved. Their eyes followed him. No one blinked, but Brad held up his hands. Honestly, I thought it would be just a joke at first. A little prank, said Brad. We'd eat a little Neanderthal meat. Maybe you or Betty the Vegan would get mad, you prudes. But once we got that first heavenly whiff, I knew this could be historic. There's something absolutely primordial about eating this flesh. It changes you. It is so good, said Anya between chews. At first I was kidding about you being part Neanderthal, said Brad with a laugh. But right after we started eating, I could tell you actually were different. Suddenly I could smell you. I sensed you. Am I right? He said, looking around. Ted and Anya nodded. Betty sunk into her chair. Jamie smiled with blood-stained teeth and took a step towards Doug. If you think that imitation meat was good, you should try the real thing, she said, taking another step. It's to die for. You fucking ghouls, what's the matter with you? Doug said, fists clenched, stepping back through the threshold leading into the kitchen. Everyone stood. They all came at him. I say we kick this party up a notch, said Ted, grabbing his steak knife. Oh, hell yeah, said Anya, grabbing the long serving fork. Best Friendsgiving ever. 
Doug turned on his heel and ran, grabbing a weapon from the kitchen island on his way, a greasy meat tenderizer they'd used on the roasts. He slammed through the back door and pounded down the steps towards the yard, where he turned quickly and ran towards the fire, which was still burning. Steps thundered behind him, some grunts. In the darkness, there was no time to find a gate in the fence and escape out into the trees. He did what instinct directed. He grabbed that burning log, half protruding from the fire. It was thin enough to be a one-handed weapon. He spun around and brandished the torch and the meat tenderizer at his pursuers. Ted and Brad stopped short, holding Anya and Janie back behind them. Stop right there or I'll fuck you up, warned Doug, swinging the meat tenderizer at them. You can't stop all of us, said Brad, advancing slowly. Knife out. There's too many. Doug lunged and swung the meat tenderizer, and it smashed into Brad's hand with a sickening meat-packing sound. The knife dropped, and Brad fell, howling in pain. See that? Next sick fuck that comes to me is going to get one in the face, he said, waggling the torch at them. The group hovered, hesitating, as Doug backed away to the opposite side of the fire from them. A figure emerged from his left, and he thrust his torch in that direction, but it was just Betty. I'm with you, she said. These people have lost their goddamn minds, even my psycho husband. You shouldn't do that, Betty Blue, said Ted. Step away from the beast. Who are you calling a beast, you maniac, said Betty. Doug passed her the meat tenderizer, nodding. Just realized they may come after you too, he said. They've gone totally insane. We're not insane, said Janie, lurching closer. We just finally realized what's been hiding right under our noses for so long. His wife came close enough, gnashing her teeth that Doug smacked her with an open hand, sending her spiraling backwards to the ground. Ted came at him, knife point forward, and Doug slammed him with the butt end of the burning log and he crumpled, tumbling a few yards into the darkness. But the sparks from that impact floated out and down and landed on Doug's sleeve atop the accelerant stain. In momentary disbelief giving way to horror, Doug watched as the spark grew and expanded on the fluid's faint fumes and then burst aflame. Christ, Betty, he shouted, dropping the torch falling onto the damp ground, trying to tear off his flannel shirt's buttons popping. The fire burned his arm hair, and then the skin, and then searing his arm flesh. He screamed the pain was unbearable. He picked up a few moist leaves on the ground and tried to snuff out the flames, but his arm kept burning. A sickening stench rose to his face, and he nearly passed out from the pain and his cooked scent. Finally, the leaves stopped the scalding. It smelled for a fleeting moment, just like what had come out of the oven, but he pushed that thought away as quickly as it had arrived. Betty was standing protectively over him, swinging the meat tenderizer wildly at the advancing group of friends. But suddenly, like she had heard an invisible call from beyond, she lowered her arms. The advancing group lowered their weapons too, as if an unspoken truce had taken hold. Betty lifted her nose high and breathed deeply, sampling the air. She coughed. She stepped again. Then she lowered her head towards Doug, eyes closed, and inhaled the air around him. Oh no, 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 said Doug. Her eyes shot open and she stared. You smell it now, don't you? asked Brad. You do, great. Now let's all get the beast. They all turned to Doug, who staggered to his feet and backwards with his burned arm no longer smoking, but still pungent with his fried aroma. 
He stumbled back into the shadows until he was pinned against the fence as his dinner guest closed in. Let's all give thanks for this meal we are about to receive, said Brad with a grin, eyes twinkling. I want the loins, said Janie. After all, our will said I get everything in the event of his death. They all laughed and went in for the kill, knives and the meat tenderizer and fire and teeth. You've been listening to the Night's End Podcast, Halloween Special 2023. Production by Dissonance Media. Friendsgiving was written by Seth Augenstein. Seth Augenstein is a writer of fiction and non-fiction. His debut novel, Project 137, was called An Involving Tense and Visceral Near Future Thriller by Kirkus, and it won a reader's favourite award. His second novel, Llama with a Gun, was called an exhaustively researched, bloody and compelling work of historical fiction by Kirkus. His short stories have appeared in more than a dozen magazines and fiction podcasts, including Writer's Digest, The Grey Room's Podcast, The Molotov Cocktail, and others. He's been a decade writing for New Jersey newspapers, most recently The Star Ledger. He was also the editor of Forensic Magazine, a tour guide at the James Joyce Center, and a student in Saul Bellow's final class. Now he lives on a rocky ridge in New Jersey with his wife, daughters, dog named Mishima, and cats. This episode was narrated by Joshua Boucher. Jimmy Horrors was performed by James Barnett. The Night's End Halloween theme was composed by Duncan Muggleton. This episode was edited and produced by James Barnett. Stay horrific, everyone.